Hello, I'm Stuart Chidenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is grief recovery specialist, Ilana Shapiro-Yadav. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Ilana Shapiro-Yadav, MPA, is an advanced certified grief recovery specialist, co-founder of Yadav and Hanlon, and passionate about healing the world, one heart at a time. Her focus is to meet grieving people exactly where they are and support and guide them through their grief journey. She partners with corporations to enhance corporate wellness programs to better support employees around loss and life changes. Ilana also works with individuals both in person, online, and in groups. Ilana, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thinking about the adage about uh, describing an elephant and sort of the, if blindfolded, you'd each describe something slightly different about what makes an elephant an elephant. I want to extend that sort of analogy to grief. And I'm wondering how you define grief or how you think about what grief is. That's an incredible analogy for grief because we do talk about grief being the elephant in the room, but it's true. No two people really describe grief in the same way. And the way that I, I define grief, and it's, you know, it's, it's a definition used by the Grief Recovery Institute, is that grief is, are the conflicting feelings around any change of a familiar pattern or behavior. And grief is normal and it's natural. And so there's no, you know, there's no one size fits all for grief. You know, and when we have life changes, it is grief, whether it's good or bad. Not everyone will associate grief with anything positive, but that also is a grieving experience because it's a change. So grief is not necessarily always bad, and I say that with quotations, but grief grief means there's a change. A lot of people describe grief in different ways, hence your elephant. And but the, really the way I, I look at it is, is grief really is are the conflicting feelings around a familiar change of a pattern of behavior. And so you can tell with that definition, it's very encompassing and really encompasses a lot. Given what feels like, a, to me, a somewhat unexpected and fairly broad definition, what would we think of as the causes of grief? Well, there really, there's over 40 different types of causes of grief. So I, I'm narrowing it down for you, but let me give you some examples. So oftentimes, death is really the first thing that comes to mind, followed by divorce. But when we start to parse out death, you have death of loved ones, and then you have death of what we call less than loved ones. So someone that you may have had a complicated relationship with. And that's also another level of grief when there's someone who has died that, say, you didn't get to reconcile with, or you had a tumultuous relationship with. So within death, there are already so many different kinds of grief. And then there's divorce and all the losses that come with divorce. And when you think about all the people that are impacted by divorce and, and death as well, 
the divorce, you know, thinking about the children and how it affects the children, the friendship, the social circle, moving houses, change in routine. So there's changes in finances, childcare. So every grief experience has a lot of other losses that are associated with, and those aren't always, always taken into consideration moving whether it's moving to say your dream house or having to downsize or upsize, those are also grieving experiences. And when I, when I say this, sometimes people kind of snicker when I say, you know, getting married is a grieving experience. And I don't, I don't say that to be flippant. It's a change in a familiar pattern of behavior. Now all of a sudden there, you know, there are two people making decisions. And I say this about happy marriages, you know, when you're excited to get married, not, I mean, not every case is like that. But that's a grieving experience. Um, and other happy things, having a baby, being pregnant in a pandemic. Well, the pandemic pet's not happy, but I speak from experience. It's, it's, a, it's a different kind of grieving experience from all the expectations and hopes that I had of being a pregnant woman. So I, I could go on and on, but so just trying to kind of, you know, parse it down for you of all the different kinds of loss. And those are just, just like the tip of the iceberg but it's important. I can't help but then think about the judgment when we think that the loss isn't adequate. You'll hear me say a lot that we, we don't compare and grief. So any grieving experience that you have is felt at 100%. And your grieving experience doesn't take away from someone else's experience and vice versa. I mean, there's plenty of grief to go around for everyone. You know, it's, it's not a, unfortunately, it's not a scarce resource and I try to bring some levity to this, but in all seriousness, you know, that is something that I do hear a lot and I have a very specific example in my head that I'll share in a second, but people do sometimes fall into that comparison. I, I gave a talk once and there was a woman who had buried an adult child and a woman who had lost a dog. And both women were in a lot of pain. You know, the woman who had lost the dog, it was her child, her family. You know, and the woman who had lost the child came up to me afterwards and she's like, I couldn't listen to that woman. And her pain and her grief is very valid. And so was the woman who lost the dog whose pain and grief is very valid. They're both in a lot of pain. And we really, we can't compare grief. Society does kind of, it feels like put a hierarchy on, on grief. And the fact is every person has different pains and different things that are important and different values. And so really it's, it's very, very important that we don't compare losses. Does grief always involve loss or absence? And I, I'm asking that because um, you were helpfully clarifying what grief is by talking about a change in a familiar pattern. And I'm not entirely sure if that always involves loss or absence. So I wonder if maybe there are some other, um, you know, some other examples of more unexpected changes of familiar pattern that could cause grief. Yeah. I mean, winning the lottery or all of a sudden coming into a lot of money when maybe before money was a little bit tight or, you know, money was not as, you know, what wasn't there as much. That also can be a change of behavior. It's like, woohoo, I won the lottery, but oh my gosh, now there's all this money or getting an inheritance, or getting married. That's not losing something. I mean, since maybe autonomy, but like that's gaining an, a partnership. That's gaining being part of like this team that you get to be on, having children, you know, I, but that's gaining like these beautiful little humans 
but that's also a loss right there or getting even say getting your dream car. I loved my beat up Toyota Corolla. I love that car. And so when we upgraded, I, I'm not going to lie. Like I miss my beat up Corolla. Like we were, we went through a lot together, you know, and it's, and it's, and it's like, it's, it can sound silly, but to me, when I traded the car in, I had a moment where I was, I was genuinely sad. Like those are some examples or here's another one, getting that promotion or getting a dream job. That is also a change and can come with certain, you know, just all new responsibilities, all new patterns. Sometimes with promotions comes way more hours of work. So I think, I hope this is starting to kind of give you the gist of, of that it's not just losing something, that also it can be part of very happy things. It's okay to cry As long as you let them go It wasn't your fault You didn't know Pathological lies I rarely found What about our responses then? Uh, so it's, it's fascinating to think about the breadth and the diversity of how grief might be caused. And now I'm thinking about what are um, maybe firstly some typical, some fairly common responses to grief. And then maybe any examples you have secondly that just reflect our subjective encounter with grief, some, some kind of um, surprising or atypical responses a lot of responses to grief aren't always wonderful. There's a lot of those comparisons, those judgments, which is my mission and my partner Kim's mission to really help educate people to kind of help eradicate these comparisons. And a lot of times people will be very hard on themselves about grief. You know, like, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be grieving. Um, it was just a, it was just a cat. It was just a dog or my grandparent was really old, you know, a lot of these, you know, trying to justify. And the fact is grief is grief and grief is valid. You know, one of the most heartbreaking things is when people really berate themselves and say, you know, Oh, this death occurred 20 years ago. I should be over it right now. It's like, well, well, well no, because your, your pain is real. And what makes our pain and grief even more real is when we, when we don't, and we try to deny it and we don't validate it and we don't hear it. And that's really what everyone needs. I mean, everyone grieves differently, but that space to be heard and seen and validated. And so I think that's the biggest problem is when people 
should themselves and when they should others and when they compare others and or try to justify it. He's better off there or he's in a better place now. He was in pain. He was suffering. Those all may be very valid, but they're emotionally barren. They're not emotionally valid. And so that's a lot of the responses that I've seen. And then on the flip side, when when someone is really, really emotional, sometimes they get berated for that too. Well, you're too emotional. It's been three weeks since you buried your father. And I speak from personal experience when I buried my father. And this is part of what fuels why I do the work that I do, because I was very, very emotional. And I didn't know what I know now back then that it was normal and natural. And a lot of people berated me and said I was too dramatic. I was crying too much at my father's funeral, okay, at my father's shiva. And I'm like, honestly, like, I I think my response is quite appropriate. (laughs) I think you could cry too. So, but, but the thing is, everyone reacts differently. Some people don't cry in public. Some people don't cry at all. And, and they're all valid. You know, who are we to pass judgment on how other people deal with their grief? You know, and, and some people like, might laugh, you know, because it's just, it's such a, sometimes like a death in particular can be such a shock that there's all these emotions that it may come out as a laugh. And that's okay too. So there's so many different ways to react, but what is not okay is, is to hurt someone else in the process, to judge someone else and to hurt yourself and judge yourself by invalidating what you feel. I am curious about, you know, what, what are some of the common responses to grief, like crying, but also what are some of the, you know, less common responses that, that you've seen that, um, you know, like laughter may, may surprise someone who isn't a part of this grieving experience. Yeah, so there's, there's responses, and then sometimes they can also fall into the category of, of coping mechanisms, which is another conversation. But anger, very displaced anger sometimes at everyone around you. And sometimes you can, you can tell without even knowing someone who's grieving if they're exceptionally angry and nasty because when hurt, people are hurting, they hurt other people. So a dear colleague of mine always says, you know, hurt people, hurt people. And it's very true. So there can be anger or there could be over, over kindness, anything to, or deflection, you know, anything to avoid having to talk about yourself or feeling, you know, your feelings and really focusing on others or just like complacency, like, no, that, that didn't happen. They're just away on a secret mission or something. You know, and I, I'm not even saying that jokingly, like I have heard before that, you know, they're part of the secret service and they'll be back. And when I hear that, you know, it's, it's, and when someone's being very serious, you know, just got to sit there and hold that space for them. And, and so that's sometimes what, you know, people react in that denial and disbelief or they believe it, but they don't want to believe it. And so those there's, and again, there's no, there's really, there's no right reaction because everybody reacts to grief differently. And, and then that can fall into to coping mechanisms where, you know, alcohol, food, Netflix, gaming, retail therapy, the list can go on and on. And, and some of these are, are healthy, like gardening is a great, you know, a great release, but it's not going to help, you know, it's not going to make it go away. So those are just some of the examples that I've seen. And I'm sure there are 
probably others because there's always something like new and unique. But the, the, the point I'm trying to make is that there's no one size fits all in anything grief related. I'm really pleased that you drew a distinction for me between our response to a grief event and then how we cope with that. And I, I wonder if there are two perspectives on that. One, one perspective is the person who is experiencing grief and how they cope and recover. And then those people around them, whether it's um, a partner, a relative, a friend, a co-worker, how that person may be equipped to identify and help someone that's recovering from grief. So taking them in turn, how does someone cope with and recover from, from grief? We'll start with the healthy coping mechanisms. You know, things in moderation are okay. You know, sometimes you just want a glass or two of wine. But going into that with the awareness that this is not going to help my grief feel better. This is going to make me feel different and distract me, but it's not working through my grief. And that's one of the biggest distinctions because a lot of times people will fall into coping mechanisms, both good and bad. You know, there's some very healthy coping mechanisms when done in moderation. However, when they're done with, with the hope that it's going to help heal the grief, that's when we have an issue. But when it's done that, you know, with the awareness that, okay, you know, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm escaping, and that's okay too. And really to work through grief is, is to start by understanding what grief is, you know, and what grief is and the human experience of grief. And I really, I really recommend anyone who had a loss to see some sort of grief counselor. And there's a lot of different grief modalities. You know, I'm trained in the Grief Recovery Institute and the Grief Recovery Method and a couple of other grief modalities. And again, there's no one size fits all. The grief recovery method is an evidence-based program that, that I teach that works through grief and loss and finding where there are all the undelivered communications and really being able to complete the relationship to the pain. That's not to say you'll never feel sad because anyone who says you're never going to feel sad again, they're lying because we're human and we, you know, we're, we're, we're human. And, and then the other modalities, but really what they all have in common is a safe space to be heard and seen and to tell the story as many times as they need to tell over and over again and to be able to, to really, to get it out, you know, and, to, and, and in a safe space. And I can't express that enough, but there's a term that we love to be a heart with ears. And like, if you picture, you know, if you picture a heart with ears and I know it can sound a little cheesy, but really it's, it's such a powerful image because if you as the, as the person supporting the griever comes from that place, that place of empathy and that place of love, then already you're able to show up. Your energy is able to support that person. So to segue into the next question, how to support people, really the number one way is to hold that space, is to acknowledge the elephant, is to acknowledge, you know, you're hurting and I'm so sorry. And, and even saying, I have no idea what to say to you, but I wanted to say something, beautiful. It's better than not acknowledging it. So with, with coworkers, and then, I mean, that's a whole other conversation talking about grief in the workplace and how much grief is appropriate. And we'd need about like eight hours for me to, <laughs> to talk about that. But as a coworker, as a manager, and saying, how are you doing today? You know, make sure to add that today. How are you doing today? You know, I, I see, you know, I see maybe you seem a little distracted. Do you want to talk about it? 
or I'm thinking of you. So there's very, very easy ways to let someone feel seen and heard, putting a little sticky on someone's desk on the on an important date, just saying, thinking of you and like a Kit Kat or popcorn, you know, or whatever is in that, like for a work situation, whatever's in the break room, saying we're ever back at work. But like that post-it, that little post-it can mean so much. Sending an email, a spouse or a friend, and just by acknowledging it, really that's what, that, I mean, not everybody is the same, but it's a great place to start by acknowledging and validating. High clouds drifting away, leaving the shadows under. First step out of the maze, follow the path and wander. And we go, we go with no illusions. I want to get to why you do this work, but I don't want to go straight there. What I actually want to ask you, first of all, is to describe your childhood. I, I had a wonderful childhood. I had four doting grandparents. I were a big part of my life. Two wonderful parents, two brothers. So, you know, brothers, they tortured me, but I tortured them too, <laughs> you know? And just a very, a very blessed and I guess pretty sheltered life. I mean, I, I, I look back on my childhood with just a lot of, of just happiness and joy. I, I was a terror teenager. I tortured my parents. In what way? Um, I just, I don't know, was moody. I wanted to go out and maybe it might've been a little self-centered, but my mom's forgiven me since. <laughs> good friends now but you know I just I my my dad and mom had really powerful work ethics really good people really worked hard to teach us to love everyone and to live by tikkun alam which is the Hebrew word for healing the world and my dad was a doctor so he really did live by that and you know when I was at college and when I was living in China he would, you know, send my brothers and I an email and he'd be like, okay, well, how, you know, how do you make the world better? And he would talk about how, you know, he would help like an old lady get gas or help someone cross the street. And um, one of my favorite childhood memories was I'm from a small town in upstate New York. So like everybody knew each other, then, which is kind of annoying sometimes because you really couldn't get in trouble and keep it a secret because, you know, it's like, hey, your dad's my doctor, so I'll be seeing him tomorrow. Darn it. But um, anyway, so my dad and I were once walking down Main Street in Monticello, New York, which our Main Street, you would laugh, any of you city people. A rather large homeless person came up to my dad and was like, hey, you got some money? And my dad was like, little short guy. And my dad like, looks up at him and he goes, come with me. 
And the guy looks at me, like, I don't know. And we walked into a, a deli. My dad says to the teller, get my friend here, whatever he wants. You know, and the guy's like, oh, I'll have a sandwich. My dad's like, you want a Coke too? Coca-Cola? Yeah, man. And then bought this guy a sandwich and then walked out, you know? Like, and I just remember, and the guy looks at me and I'm like, enjoy. <laughs> like, you know, and like just doing the little things that he couldn't do to just to help and make this world a little bit better. And that always stuck with me um, forever. God, that was like maybe 30 years ago now or 25. But so anyway, so I had a very, you know, wonderful childhood besides being a rotten teenager. When I say the word childhood, yeah. What did that conjure in, in your mind? I mean, the first thing that popped into my mind was safety. Just always feeling safe and cared for. And then when I think of smells, gosh, my mom's an amazing cook and used to make fresh challah, which is what we eat um, on the Sabbath. And so the house usually always smelled good of food. Or, you know, my dad used to lay on the floor and read his newspaper, like, you know, actual newspapers. So like that crinkle sound, you know, that newspapers make that I guess today's generation may not even know what that is. And well, I'm dating myself here. But, you know, and I can just see the house that I grew up in. And I don't know that there's, like, distinct smells, per se. And just, we, my mom had gorgeous gardens, so just a lot of greenery and nature. And we lived, like, in the middle of nowhere, so it was pretty quiet. <laughs> you can hear this, actually, the, the cicadas and um, whatever those bugs are that come out, like, when it's starting to get dark. That, when I hear them here, reminds me of, of growing up, too just that kind of calming noise that, you know, the world is getting ready to go to sleep tonight. You've had many interesting experiences and, and, and before uh, adventuring into grief recovery, I know you spent time in China. Um, I think you spent some time in Israel as well. And um, to experiences, I think, with some volunteer training with the Israeli Defense Force, yeah. um, some archaeology excavations, uh, I'm not entirely sure what you were doing in China. So so let's take some of those experiences. Um, what took you, first of all, to Israel? So Israel has always been a huge part of my life. And my dad spent time there when he was 18. And we all speak terrible Hebrew with terrible New York accents. So I wanted to do the program that my dad did. It's called Gender Day a Year Course. And as part of that program study Hebrew, I opted to volunteer in the army because as a supporter, I wanted to put my money where my mouth is and actually experience what it was like. I mean, of course, they dumbed it down for the Americans. <laughs> so we were a little bit more coddled than like real soldiers were, like being perfectly honest. Like we carried guns without firing pins, which soldiers would not carry empty M16s. You know, and so we were definitely a little bit more babied, but it was an incredible experience and discipline and what the body's capable of. I'm not really soldier material, but I mean, I'm not a great soldier. I did the best I could. But so that was a really powerful experience for me. Um, if I never have to be an archaeological site again, I'll be happy because getting up at 5 a.m. to label things is a level of patience that skips me. But again, Living in a tent for three weeks was a really powerful experience that I'm glad I had it. Um, I'm sure they don't want me back anymore than I want to go back, <laughs> to be honest. But it just really, it opened my eyes because 
there's so many things that we can see in the news or so many things we can read about, but until we actually like are there on the ground and experiencing it and meeting wonderful people. So I had an incredible time in Israel and learning. Um, I was also 18, which was the legal drinking age there. So I did get to you know, experience partying, which was lots of fun too. And my mom still makes fun of me when she came to visit me. I took her to my favorite bar and the bartender knew me. And she was like, I don't know if I should be proud or <laughs> just be proud. Mom. And, um, and then after that, I got to backpack across Europe, which was awesome. I took a train with a friend all across Europe, which was really cool. Um, and so that was that experience. And then when I went to China, I went first when I was 16, just on like a summer program. And that kind of, I kind of fell in love with China, with the culture. It's a very different place 20 years ago. And I just, the history was fascinating and the people were so nice and wonderful. So I went back my junior year of college for full immersion. And then I went back when I graduated college to do a graduate program until my parents kicked me off the payroll. And so I got a job in corporate real estate and relocation, which I loved because, and this is where it can start to tie into grief recovery is as a relocation consultant, you're part therapist. <laughs> you know, when you're helping people relocate from the U.S., from England, from other parts of the world to China, and when they're bringing their spouses and their children, like I really was a therapist. I, the things that people shared with me and the, the mediation that I had to do when, you know, I'm like, we're supposed to be looking at apartments here, but okay, let's sit down and, and talk about this. And, you know, and that was the part that I loved. You know, the real estate part was just the means to actually get to work with people. And then, and, you know, and that was always, and I'm still in touch with some of my clients today. It's been God, like over a decade. You know, and because you just become family. So I loved, oh my God, I loved living in China. I loved studying Mandarin. the motivation that drew you to uh, grief recovery? Yes. There, there is a thread, even though in my real estate 
public admin, there really always is a common thread. It's just not always apparent. But during this time, I'm, I just got offered a job at the real residential real estate company. And so I went home for Chinese New Year and my parents did not give me any warning as to what I was coming home to because they could not handle to tell me over the phone. But it was that trip home back to New York that we found out that they found a mess in my dad's brain. And that was really the beginning of my grief journey. I remember vividly, when you talk about smells and sounds, I remember the exact place that I was standing at JFK International Airport. And and if you've been to JFK, you know what a uplifting and wonderful place that parking lot. It's dreary and it was like October, so it was gross out. And I just remember standing by the trunk with my mom and asking where dad was because he never missed an airport pickup ever in all the years I was going to China. And so that was the moment that I basically started to, to fall apart from a grief perspective. And I grew up again, very blessed, but also very sheltered. So I had never really experienced any real pain like that. You know, and I always tried to be kind to others, but until you experience it, it's, 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 it's something that it's an understanding that I don't wish on anyone really. But so that was when we found out it was inoperable. It was aggressive. And so I, I then began being back and forth to China until finally, you know, they tried all these treatments and I am very bitter to the doctor at Duke who gave us a lot of false hope. I think you need to be very careful what you tell families and false hope. But during this period of time, like I was a mess. Like I, I was kind of the poster child of everything that you shouldn't do when grieving. So and, and like, like when I went back to China, you know, it, it was a big party scene and there was a lot of alcohol and partying involved, which is a terrible combination when you're sad and grieving. And luckily my mom was okay when I drunk dialed her, but like really drunk dialing your grieving mother is not exactly the best thing to do. So again, poster child for everything you shouldn't do. And during all that time, I didn't feel like anybody knew how to talk to me. I didn't feel like I didn't know what I needed. I didn't have any of the language that I have now. And I remember one of those nights where I was just crying myself to sleep all night. I I just had this moment where I promised myself that when I got to a place of healing, I was going to make sure I would do everything in my power that no other little girl felt. I mean, little girl, I was 24, but I felt like a little girl losing her daddy, you know, that no girl would ever feel that way again. And that's really where my motivation comes from. It took me over a decade to get to that place. And I had to make a lot more mistakes. (laughs) I had to go through a lot of different kinds of grief training until I found ways to, to, to work through my own grief before I could hold somebody else's grief. And if you would ask me, 14 years ago, if I'd be able to be on this podcast and talk to you about this dry eyed, I, I would have thought you were insane. You know, the fact that I can now talk to people and I, I get, I get excited to be able to talk about my dad. Like to me, you know, I mean, you can see how big I smile. I, I get excited to be able to share about him, to share about his life and the impact he had on my family. And, but that, that didn't happen overnight and not everyone takes that long. Again, everyone's journey is different. I needed to make every mistake under the sun, every mistake. And, but I'm grateful because it 
fuels how I work. It fuels how I get to show up for people. It fuels how I get to serve people. So that's kind of the very long, short story of it. But so I was finally able to keep that promise to my 24-year-old self. I want to ask something a little more personal. You said something about how you feel a little bitter towards the doctor at Duke that gave you false hope. I can't help but wonder if um, bitterness and, and blame are features of you know, a response to grief. And if, if that's accurate, even though it's a decade on and you've worked through this maze to get to some kind of inner peace, if, to be blunt, this is just another indication that grief can linger and appear in kind of interesting ways. Yeah, and, and the, the, the truth is grief is a nonlinear journey, you know, and I still practice what I preach. Actually, every week, Kim and I hold the space for each other to do the work that we teach because grief is never ending. And yeah, I still have some, some anger around the, the doctor that gave us hope and which is why I still do my own work. You know, it's, and I think any, any single grief specialist, grief counselor, what have you, is always doing their own work because I can't fully show up for someone else if I have all my garbage coming out at them, like if I have all my pain. So I, I've been actually doing, I've been getting much deeper into a lot of work that I'm like, okay, I make my clients do this, you know? I still need to keep doing this. And so, yeah, no, it's true. Like there are things, it, it's not like, you know, you, you get the training and it's a one and done deal. No, it's, it's constantly learning, constantly growing. And with every life change comes a new level of grief and, and the pandemic, the pandemic actually, I mean, there's so many different ways the pandemic has affected so many different people, including myself. But one of the hardest things for me at the start of the pandemic was my dad was a doctor. I, I was so sad because I was like, he wouldn't be able to understand what was going on and be able to tell me, you know, sift through all the CDC stuff and like actually tell me what's going on. Cause I went to China during SARS. Like it was awesome. It was a cheap ticket. Like I had a blast. Half the people didn't go on my program. So I had a lot of one-on-one attention in my Chinese class, but I went because my dad was able to assess that he felt it was safe for me to go. So that brought up a whole new level of grief during the pandemic and the grief of all the people he could have helped and all. So that was very poignant for me and something I needed to work on again. Many of us will have experienced grief in, in some way through some of the, um, 
through some and many more of the kinds of encounters or experiences that you've talked about already. But it feels as if the pandemic in some ways is unique in that it's probably touching the lives of most people on the planet. So I'm wondering if in that context, there's, there's anything, any observation you have about the pandemic itself and the work that you do or grief generally. A lot of people don't realize that what they're experiencing is grief. And a lot of people will minimize. So let me give you some examples of, of how we're all affected by the pandemic. The shelter in place. So all of a sudden it means, I know it's, it's less stringent depending what part of the world you're in, but at first when we were all in very serious lockdown, what does that mean? One, you no longer have those daily interactions with people, whether it's your work friends or your person friends, all the going to the gym, you know, like I was grieving not being able to go to Orange Theory anymore. I loved Orange Theory, you know, and it might, you know, and it can sound a little silly, but again, it's a change in a familiar pattern of behavior. Can't go to yoga, can't go to happy hours. And then when you think about, so there, there's like the first level there. And then a lot of small businesses suffered because all of a sudden now like they're, it changed the way they have to do business and rents. So there's that. And then with work, um, I, in my past life, I was a marketer. And so all of these marketers who plan their big events every year and spend the year prior up to planning had to cancel all of these events. And then weddings, not to mention the people who were sick, like who got COVID, family members not being able to be with them to say goodbye, and then not being able to grieve together in a community with funerals is very hard layer. And then you have the layers of people that deny the severity of COVID, and that's another layer of grief. And then, so I mean, I, I could go on and on, but there's a lot of things that people don't really realize that it is grief and once we can start to name it and I, I had someone say that something that's so hard for them was not to be able to hug their grandchild and that's a feeling of, of grief and then another one that hits me very personally right now where for a while um women were no one was allowed to be in the room when they were giving birth and so now they're allowing at least a spouse or one person to be in there, whether it's a spouse or a partner or whomever. But that's a really, I mean, that's a really scary thing for a first time mom, you know, and, as, and someone being pregnant in a pandemic, you know, there's a whole lot of grief that happens for, for women that are pregnant right now and all the fears that come and then, you know, not being able to show off the belly bump, not being able to have your spouse come to any appointments with you. So there's so many different layers that, everyone is experiencing everyone in the world travel restrictions literally every single person is affected by it and i think people don't always realize that what they're experiencing is grief and i hear you know i'm tired i'm grumpy i'm irritable yeah those are all that's normal and that's natural it seems as if grief is something uh, an encounter with being human that perhaps we are able to talk about more than we used to. But I don't know if that's true. So I'm wondering if, um, if you see a change in the social dialogue and social norms around grief as a subject. Oh, yes. That, that is, if we can dare say, the silver lining on the pandemic, that the conversation has started to come up more and more. Grief is starting to get a seat at the table. 
and people are really starting to be willing to have these conversations. Sometimes we have to have a conversation without calling it grief right away, you know, kind of have to wiggle that in. But it def definitely because of COVID and there are a lot of companies now that are paying attention and realizing that grief, you know, like depression, like alcoholism, anxiety, these are things that corporations need to pay attention to, not just out of the goodness of their heart, but because it does really affect their bottom line. Healthcare, there are huge, huge expenses associated with grief. So yes, I do think that an upside is that people are talking about it more. People, I think, are in some ways building a little bit more empathy towards others in some ways not so much and I don't know if that's a result of, of the upcoming election or pandemic or what have you I don't want to touch that subject but I do feel that there is starting to be some hope in really having this conversation and the thing is grief is so many different things when I think about my dad's shiva like I have some very like very happy pockets of memories, you know, in between all the tears where there was such laughter and joy celebrating his life. It's not either or, you know, it's not either joy or sadness or fear or gratitude. It's, they all coexist. They all hold hands. I'm wondering if there's something that you feel like you would like to share about the work that you do. And it could be a personal anecdote. It could be a reflection on someone else's experience. It could be um, priming someone who's listening uh, and maybe struggling with the first thing to do. It could be any number of things. You think I can answer that with one sentence? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh God, that's, it's hard to choose just one. But I think, I guess, from a personal perspective, I think one of the biggest gifts that I that I get every day by helping others is I feel that I, I get to honor my dad and it's very healing for me. You know, people ask me, they're like, how does someone like bubbly like you like work in grief? And I'm like, I'm bubbly because I work in grief because I have the tools and I'm not always bubbly. You can ask my husband. But uh, just being able to sit there and hold that space for someone else is, is truly healing. And my dad was a doctor and that's how he healed the world. And I feel that it's my purpose. That's how I get to heal the world by healing hearts and helping sit and, and hold the space in conversations that people, other people may not have the energy to have. So I just feel very blessed to be able to do this work. I feel very blessed for the people that I have met throughout my grief journey that's really like the final thing and, and, and just really encouraging people to, to, to reach out to someone safe, whoever that is, to somebody safe. And you can even give those instructions, no critiquing, no judging, no fixing, because a lot of times as a griever, we don't know what we need. So that's a good place to start. So yeah, I guess I'm just really, I just feel very blessed that I finally was able to get to a place that I could get out of my own grief. I mean, I don't worry, I still have plenty of grief, but, um, but to be able to really channel that and help do my part to leave this world a little bit better the way my dad did.
My guest today has been grief recovery specialist Ilana Shapiro Yadav. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you, Stuart. Have I gone totally beyond your question? Okay, because you can stop me at any point. <laughs> I, just, I just like. <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more.